Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Well, it's wonderful to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon to share some ideas and to learn more about our Holy Torah together. Today is the 10th of Iyar, the Hebrew date. It's the 11th of May. The Hebrew date is the 10th of the month of Iyar, which is a very significant day in our calendar because today is the Yotzeit of Rav Yitzchak Al-Fasi. Rav Yitzchak Al-Fasi, also known as the Rif, um, was born in 1013 in Morocco, and he died in the year 1103. Uh, he was a Talmud, a student of the famous Rabbeinu Hananel. So if anybody has learned Talmud, knows that the Rabbeinu Hananel um, has notes on the side and often corrects the text of the Talmud. The Rif was his Talmud. And the Rif was the first to usher in this period called the Rishonim. Rishonim literally means the first ones. So we had the Tanaim, who were the authors of the Mishnah, the Amoraim, the authors of the Gemara, of the Talmud. And then we had the Goenim. And that was uh, the end of the Goenic era, brought in the era of what we call the Rishonim, which was from about um, the 11th century to the end of the 15th century. And the Rif was the first of the Rishonim. And um, he... He did many great things, but his, his greatest contribution to the Jewish world, which still impacts on us today, is that in 1045, he moved to Fez with his wife and his two children in Morocco. And the community in Fez saw this was a very great man, a very great Talmud Chacham, somebody worthy of um, supporting and somebody who could lead the community. In fact, he became the leader of the community in Fez for over 40 years. And they supported him, the community, and they supported his yeshiva. He opened the yeshiva. And um, his yeshiva, he had many great Talmidim. Um, Rav Yehuda Levi, the Kuzari, was a Talmud of the Rif. And also the very famous Rav um, Yosef Ibn Migash, the Rimigash, was also a Talmud of the Rif. In fact, the Rimigash was, uh, became the Rebbe of Rav Maimon, who was the father of the Rambam. So we had the Rif, then the Rimigash, then Rav Maimon, and then the Rambam. So the Rambam was like a fourth generation away from the Rif. And his magnus opus, his great work, was a halachic work called the Sefer Halachos. And uh, the Sefer Halachos was a Sefer that um, he wrote. And it was really a summary of all the halachas that were required, that were needed at the time to know. That, that's what the Rambam actually says about it. The Rambam says that his work superseded that of the Goenim in terms of laying out all the halachas that were needed at the time. And that was the first precedent of really gathering together all the practical halachas that a Jew needs to know. And after the Rif, um, the Rambam and the Rosh then wrote their classic halachic sforim. And uh, the Shulchan Aruch, which is the majority opinion of the Rambam, the Rif, 
and the Rosh. In other words, let me just explain a little bit more clearly. So we have what's called the Mishnah, which is the um, the Shisha Sidre Mishnah, the six orders of Mishnah. That is the oral tradition. That is the oral law. The sages of the Talmud of the Gemara, between the years 300 and, and 550, 600 in Babylonia, they wrote the Gemara. The Gemara was an explanation of the Mishnah and filling in the gaps of the Mishnah. The Mishnah was very brief, very cryptic, but did cover the broad range of halachas that were necessary to be recorded, which, which make up the oral tradition. And the Gomorrah then speaks about the Mishnahs and fills in the gaps and gives us a full comprehensive understanding of what the Mishnahs are referring to. And so, but the Gomorrah, the Talmud is very vast, is very complicated, is quite cryptic itself, and it's difficult to learn. The Talmud is 1,711 double pages. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it is 3,422 pages, the Talmud. So that's quite a massive body of information and very difficult to, to master that body of information. Um, we know that people learn Daf Yomi, which means they learn two pages a day. Uh, they learn a Daf, which is both sides, Amud Aleph, Amud Base, and it takes them um, just uh, almost seven and a half years to complete. And then we always have those famous Siyumim that people have completed Shas and there are many, many wonderful holy Jews that have taken upon themselves the commitment to learn a daf a day, daf yomi, which is a huge commitment and very, very difficult and takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of dedication and commitment. And then after seven years, they finished all of the Talmud. But it doesn't mean they know the Talmud. It means they've been through it. But the question is, has it been through them? So it's very hard to master the whole Talmud. So what the Rif, the Rif knew that. And he wrote a summary of the discussions in the Talmud. And he abbreviated what the final conclusion of those discussions are. So he was the first one to really do it in a comprehensive way that was accepted by all of Klal Yisrael. And then, as we mentioned, four generations came the Rambam, uh, four generations later. And the Rambam then did the same. The Rambam wrote his Mishnah Torah, which is a similar thing to what the Rift did. Um, but the Rambam did it in his own style, and he, and he actually recategorized all the halachas. He didn't follow the, the Rif followed the order of the Talmud. The Rambam came up with a new order, which was easier to follow and uh, uh, was, you know, a, a uh, the Yad HaChazak, the 14 parts of the of the Mishnah Torah, are a very um, well laid out and organized um, system of halacha, which the Talmud is not. The Talmud is just, you know, the, the Mishnahs and the Talmud are, are very complicated and they very vast and they don't follow a, an easy to a, a, an easy system that you can index and that you can find the halachas quickly. Um, so the Rambam did that. It was his great innovation, amongst many other things. And then the Rosh did a similar thing, but the Rosh followed the same as the Rif. And he, Rabbeinu Asher, um, he he did um, also based his his summaries were based on the discussions of the Talmud, and he followed the order of the Talmud. When of Yosef Carroll came along in the middle of the 16th century. So he took these three, three great works, the Rif, the Rambam, and the Rosh, and he saw what their halachic conclusions were, and he based his codification of Jewish law in the Shulchan Aruch on these three works. And therefore, the halacha that we follow, we follow the Shulchan Aruch, is based on the Rif, the Rambam, and the Rosh, and the, Rosh and the majority uh, opinions of those. So therefore, we see how monumentous the work of the Rif was, of his Sefer Halachos, 
And it's something that's still studied today in the yeshivas. And it was of immense value and really transformed the Jewish world. That was the incredible contribution that the Rif made. Um, in the year 1088, he was 75 years old. He was the chief rabbi of Fez. Two informers, um, they went to the government authorities and they came up with some false charge against him. And he therefore had to leave. And he then went to Spain um, in 1088. As we mentioned, he passed away um, in 1113 um, in Spain. But he was really one of the greatest we've had and uh, led the way of Klaishal. Today is his Yotzat. Today is actually is his 900. He died in 1103. So today is his 919th Yotzat, the Yotzat of the Holy and Great Rif, um, which, of course, we... Um, benefit greatly from his contributions to Klai Yisrael, Yitzhak Al-Fasi. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Let's talk now a little bit about, so today's the 10th of ER and the uh, 919th Yotzat of the Rif, Rav Yitzhak Al-Fasi. Um, but we're reading this week Parshas Emor. Parshas Emor speaks primarily about the Kohanim and about the Mu'adim, about uh, the Kahuna and the special halachas that apply to Kohanim, and also about the Mu'adim, the festivals. But I wanted to mention one or two things about the Kahuna, which I think are very interesting and worthwhile discussing. The first one is that Judaism is actually a meritocracy. Judaism is a religion where we base things on each individual's own merits and not on the um, lineage and uh, yichas, as we say, from where they come. There's actually a famous story about this, the great Kotzkarebi. So somebody came to see him and he said he was very proud of himself, this individual. He says, I'm an anikul of a great rebbe. He said, I'm the grandson of a great Hasidic Rebbe. So the Kotzka said to him, Esav was also the grandson of a great Rebbe. I don't really care about your grandfather. I care about you. What have you done? And that is the Judaism's approach generally um, to life and to human beings. And each person is a uh, entity in and of themselves. And you're not limited to um, and locked in the family you're born into, the environment you came from, your background, each person, really, my Rosh Hashiva used to say, we all have to create our own yichas. Our own yichas start with us. In other words, we create our own destiny, we create our own life, we make our own choices. And it's a very beautiful and empowering idea and something that um, is emphasized in many places in Judaism. For example, the Gomorrah says that, um, the Gomorrah is talking to teachers of Torah, and it says you should be very careful with the Bnei Anim, with the children of those that are not wealthy. Because the Gemara says, Mihem from them the Torah will come. And they will probably be the generation that um, carries the Torah further and will uh, produce the Talmudic Chachamim. So the, and the, in, we see in the Gemara that the sages that go, both the Tanaim, who were the sages of the Tanaic era, um, which was... Uh, about 2,000 years ago, and the Amorayim, which was 1,500 years ago. So the, the Gomorrah doesn't mention whether they were wealthy or whether they were not wealthy. Some of the sages were extremely wealthy people. Some of the sages were very poor people and were workmen 
and who struggled financially. But it's irrelevant in the Talmud, and each individual is mentioned for who, uh, what they have to say and what their thought process is and what the Masoret, the Torah is that they learned. So we see that it's, it's not a major issue in Judaism, and it's not something that we hide behind or we emphasize that each person has their own yichus and has their own world to create. And we don't judge people based on their families and where they came from. Um, the only exception to that in Yiddishkeit is the Kohanim. The Kohanim, a Kohen, you know, the famous story is somebody comes to the Rav and says, I want to be a Kohen. The Rav says, why? He says, well, my, my father was a Kohen and my grandfather was a Kohen. So Kohanim is something you are born into. And um, there are, so it is an exception to the general principle of the meritocracy within Judaism. Uh, the Kohanim were given the Eldei B'nai Aaron, they came from Aaron Avinu, as the Pasuk says, for Yom HaShem El Moshe, the beginning of this week's Pasha, Emel El HaKohanim B'nai Aaron, speak to the Kohanim, the children of Aaron, Vamata Alehem, and tell them, and, and then the special laws that apply to the Kohanim are then um, instructed in the Torah. So the Kohanim were the descendants of Aaron HaKohen, they were the descendants of Moshe's, Moshe's brother Aaron, and they were instructed with, they had the privilege of performing the avoid of the service in the Beis HaMikdash. They would carry out the divine service of Hashem in the temple. And there are many halachas that apply to that and that are relevant to that. Today, we um, we don't, you know, have a Beis HaMikdash, we don't have a temple, we don't have the service in the temple, we don't have the korbanos, the sacrifices. And therefore, the role of Kohanim today is nothing like it was. And it, you know, it, it's, it almost falls away. The only difference is the Kohanim, we honor the Kohanim. The Torah says we must honor the Kohanim. So we honor them by giving them the first aliyah to the Torah and the Levim also. So the Levim also are, are you know, part of this. And uh, so the Levim get the second aliyah. We also honor the Kohanim in that they um are the ones who lead the bench and generally if you have a group of people and there's a coin present so the coin has the first right to lead the benching we also the kind have the honor is that they bless, they bless the people in areas as well that the the, the birkas kohanim takes place every day in davening here in chutzlar it's in the diaspora so the birkas kohanim we only do on the yomim toivim and the kohanim have the ability the right and the privilege to bless klai to bless the jewish people um, it's interesting, the, you know, that one of the interesting, the many interesting modern halachic discussions um, because of the modern world, because of the advances of technology in various areas. So it does raise many fascinating halachic discussions. And the great poiskim, the great uh, rabbinic minds of our day um, deal with these new halachic questions based on the principles of the Torah. One of them being DNA testing. So do we regard DNA testing as valid in halacha? There's a lot of discussion about it. Um, DNA testing is valid today for uh, paternity checks um, and for many other things that that uh, of of great relevance. And generally, of course, you know, if the if it's accurate, so then we would certainly take it into account. So they actually did a, a fascinating study with kohanim. They wanted to see that if uh, do kohanim have a particular genetic marker that doesn't exist, that doesn't show up in other Jews, in, in the rest of Klai Yisrael. They did a study a few years ago, and uh, I think they took, if I'm not mistaken, 3,000 Kohanim, 
and these Kohanim were taken from all over the world, and they found that 38% of them had this marker that didn't appear anywhere else in the Jewish world. It was unique to Kohanim. So 38% of them did generally have this marker. Isn't that fascinating? It's unbelievable. So what about the other 62%? And is that valid? So that's a whole interesting discussion. Um, but today, we, since the role of the Kohanim um, is not like it was in the temple, the base of Mikdash, for somebody to eat truma, to have the food that was given to the Kohanim. In other words, Klai Yisrael supported the Kohanim and gave a certain um, portion of their harvest to the Kohanim. It was called truma. Truma Kadoila went to the coin. So every single person, remember it was an agrarian economy that people lived in, in ancient times. And so therefore the time of the temple, whoever from your harvest, from your crop, you had to give a certain amount to the coin, had to give a certain amount to the levy, and they would be the ones who would run the Beis HaMikdash, who do the service in the Beis HaMikdash. Um, and only they could perform certain things, but particularly the Kohanim with the Korban, with the sacrifices that were brought on behalf of the Jewish people, that were brought on behalf of individuals within Klai Israel. So that was only done by the Kohanim, and a non-Kohen couldn't do that. And it was a very serious avera for a non-Kohen to do things that were limited to the functioning of the Kohen. So today we don't have that. So today we're not so strict really in our um, investigations of if somebody has a Masoira, has a tradition, that they're a Kohen and um, they learned that from their father and their grandfather. So we regard them as a Kohen. So we don't tell them like, you know, it was a time in, in the pandemic where, you know, there were ideas being thrown around that maybe we should only allow people that were vaccinated into the shuls and they would have to present their vaccination card if they would come into shul. Um, so, uh, you know, do we do that with Kohanim? Do we say to the Kohanim, you have to present your certificate from the base din that you are a Kohen before you're able to duchen, to bless the people, before you're able to get the first aliyah, um, before you're able to lead the benching. So we don't do that today because because the you know the stakes aren't as high as they were when we had a base on Mikdash, but still, nonetheless, we do um, honor the Kohanim. The, the only real difference is the Kohanim do have some marital restrictions. They are not so severe, but they are very um, important to be kept and to be observed. So that was the only real limitation of the Kohanim. And of course, the Kohanim doesn't go to the cemetery. He can't be matama himself. He can't come into contact with a dead body within Dalad Amos, within two meters, unless it's an immediate relative. But I think there are some very important and powerful points to learn out um, from the Kohuna and from Kohenim and from the beginnings of the Kohuna. Um, and the first one, which is very fascinating, is that um, the Moshe is very reluctant to appoint Aaron as the Kohen Gadol. He's very worried about nepotism. And he expresses those concerns to Hashem. And Hashem says to him, I understand where you're coming from, but Aaron must be the Kohen Gadol. It's the right thing. You must do it. So Moshe is, Hashem says, it'll all be okay. And Moshe's concerns actually, you know, are, um, do express themselves. They manifest with the rebellion of Korach, that Korach said, how can you be the leader and how can Aaron be the Kohen Gadol? Um, but Hashem told him, Hashem knows more than we know that it's, uh, it's the right thing this must be. Um, so we see the Kohuna was born out of reticence. And likewise with Aaron, Aaron too is very reluctant is very hesitant to um, accept the role of Kohen Gadol and to be the first Kohen and to be the the Kohen Gadol, the head of the Kohen and the chief Kohen. Um, what's Aaron's concern? Aaron's concern, says the Midrash, 
is that um, he he's worried that he was involved with the Cheta Egel, with the sin of the golden calf. And he thought that when Klai Yisrael see him dressed in the big day kahuna, or not just the big day kahuna, but the, the garments that were reserved only for the Kohen Gadol. So the Kohanim had a number of garments that they would wear, and then the Kohen Gadol would have over and above that special garments that he would wear. So Aaron was concerned that the people would look at him and they would associate him with the debacle of the Cheta Egel, the son of the golden calf. And all they'll see when they look at him is those broken luchos, the broken tablets that Moshe broke when he came down um, from Har Sinai on Shiva Asabatamas on the 17th of Tammuz, and he broke the tablets over the calf. So they would then associate that with Aaron. It would be a negative association, and it would not be appropriate for the Ha priest, for the Kohen Gadol, doing the Avoida, doing the uh, service in the Beis HaMikdash. And that's an interesting and accurate assessment of human nature that Aaron is making, because generally people remember the negative things. You know, a person could do 90% of what he does is great and wonderful, and 10%, you know, he made a mistake. People will remember the, the bad. I, I remember when I was a child, I used to play a lot of soccer, and uh, I used to go for provincial trials. In those days, it was called Southern Transvaal. And uh, the, the clubs would select, you know, four or five players, and they would send them to the trials, and then they would divide you up into teams, and you would play, and the selectors would watch you play, and based on those trials, that they would then cut it down to, you know, there would probably be 200 boys at the beginning, and then cut it to 100, to 50, and then they would choose their squad of, of, uh, of 16. So... Um, I remember my father telling me very wisely, he said, don't make any mistakes because you might do a lot of good things, but the selectors remember the mistakes that you make and that will be bad for you. And it was very good advice. Um, and I was fortunate to be selected a number of times uh, for Southern Transvaal. But um, the, that is human nature. That is how humans are. We, we remember the bad. We focus on the bad. We don't see the glass half full. We don't see the glass three quarters full, we see the glass 10% empty. That's how we are. That's how uh, we are programmed unless we're working on ourselves. So Aaron is reluctant from that point of view. He's worried that um, that people will associate him in a negative way and that will have a bad um, influence on the kahuna that would you know, uh, prevent the kahuna from achieving what it's supposed to. So we, we see two very important points over here. So that even though we're saying that Judaism is a meritocracy. It's based on individual merits and each person forges out their own spiritual pathway um, within the framework of our um, holy Avos and Imas of the Torah. But we all have our own path, path to create. Um, but And the exception to that is the Kohanim, is the Kohuna. But within that, we see that the Kohuna wasn't born out of arrogance, wasn't born out of entitlement. The foundations, the beginnings of the Kohuna was the reluctance of Aaron, the reluctance of Moshe, and Hashem still going ahead and telling them to do so. And therefore we see the Kohanim generally served out of humility. They served in a low-key manner, and that's how they were um, successful within the job that they did within Klai Yisrael. And when they, when they broke out of that mold, of being low-key. Uh, most of what I'm sharing with you I heard from Rabbi Wine, which I think is such a beautiful point he makes over here, that we see many times in Jewish history that the Kohanim um, wanted to break out of 
being, you know, humble and low key. Whenever that happened, it ended in tragedy and disaster. The most obvious example of that is the Chashmonai. So we, we know what happened with Hanukkah. There was a great Hanukkah miracle and the Kohanim were um, the, the, the base Chashmonai. So they were the children of Kohanim, the, the Kohen Gadol. Um, so Metisiyahu and his sons, they were, Metisiyahu um, was the son of Yochanan Kohen Gadol. And um, they, they fought against the Greeks. They defeated the Greeks. They showed tremendous courage and tremendous bitachon, trust in Hashem, Messias Nefesh. And they were miraculously successful of chasing the Greeks and, uh, and defeating the Greek occupation of the land of Israel. Um, and they did so with humility and with righteousness and with a sense of service to Hashem. But their children, so then they took over, you know, the rulership of Klai Israel, and they were the Kohanim, but they also, then the Chashonai, the later generations, wanted the Kahuna as well. So the Kahuna, the, uh, sorry, wanted Malchus as well. Malchus, the kingship within Klai Israel, is res reserved to base David, Malchus base David. The tribe of Yehuda and David were, are the ones who have the Malchus, who have the kingship within Klai Israel, and not the Kohanim, who are the Bnei Aaron. Um, but the Chashmonaim wanted both, and the result was complete disaster, and, it, and, and the, the, there was corruption, and it imploded on them. So the Kohanim, so the first point is the Kohanim were born out of humility, and they were born out of um, a sense of service to the Jewish people, and that's how they operated and functioned successfully within Klai Israel. And the second point is that in order for um, individuals to assume a, a place of leadership, certainly a place of public service of the people, so they have to have suffered. They have to have gone through hardship and difficulty. And so to select leaders that are you know, just the best in everything they do and everything they do they uh, turns to gold and they're brilliant and gifted and have never been through the challenge and difficulty of, you know, like you, you, you in, in school, you, you might maybe have a genius in the class and the genius is the one who, you know, it, it doesn't have to learn much for exams and knows everything and is, is able to answer all the questions quite effortlessly. But the, the, the rest of the normal students in the class, they have to work hard and they have to put in their hours and they have to really struggle. So it's not a good idea to prepare exams with the genius because he won't know what it is to suffer and to struggle to prepare for the exams because for him it's not a struggle. So likewise, when you're a leader of Klyestro, in order to empathize, in order to understand the plot, in order to have um, compassion for the, the difficulties of Klyestro, needs to be somebody who's been through difficulty themselves. It needs to be somebody who's struggled and had trauma and had um, challenges in their life. And only such individuals are worthy of representing the people and of, uh, and of being public servants of the people. So those are two very powerful points we see from the Gahuna. needs to be born out of humility and low key and from individuals that knew what it was like to suffer and experience hardship and disappointment. And then that is the recipe for successful leadership within Klai Israel. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM.
So we're discussing how the Bnei Aaron, um, the Kohanim, they, they, they were born out of a sense of humility and individuals, Aaron had been through hardship and suffering in his life and he was worried that people would associate him in a negative way with the Chaita Egel, son of the Golden Calf. That is really the pathway to successful leadership in Klal Yisrael. And Aaron became the great paradigm of Shalom. As the Mishnah in Pirka Abu says that Aaron HaKoin was Oyev Shalom, Roidev Shalom, Oyev Esabrios, Makavan the Torah. That Aaron was a person who loved peace, who pursued peace, and who um, who brought uh, human beings close to Hashem. And that was his attribute, and that was his successful. And Klaeusol loved Aaron. And the 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 Midrash says that many people named their children after Aaron. And they said, if it weren't for Aaron, they said to their children, if it weren't for Aaron HaKohen, so you wouldn't be in this world because we were having marital problems. And Aaron brought peace between us. He created Shalom Bias in our home. He gave us successful counseling. And that was the case for thousands of ch children within Klai Yisrael. And that was the great legacy of Aaron. And that's what became the model of what the Kohuna represented within Klai Yisrael. And it's an amazing thing. Um, Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch has got a beautiful understanding of the first verse of this week's Pasha. So the Pasuk says, It says, Hashem says to Moshe, speak to the Kohanim, B'nai Aaron. So why is it necessary to say B'nai Aaron? The Kohanim, we know they B'nai Aaron. Why does the Torah need to say B'nai Aaron? It says Rav Hirsch that Moshe was telling the Kohanim that the way they could inspire the future generations to live up to the responsibility of being a coin is to emphasize to them that they are B'nai Aaron, that they come from Aaron HaKoyim. They come from this incredible legacy, this uh, ancestor, their great-great-grandfather, who was a person that was filled with so much love and so much care for the Jewish people that he is the paradigm, he is the epitome of love and of peace and of shalom. So it, it's, a, it's a very powerful idea that Rav Hirsch is telling us over here because as Jews, we have a great challenge. We faced in the world with a quite a foreign, quite a hostile world to our values and to our worldview. And if we look at the world today and what's going on in the world today, so it is, you know, quite extreme in terms of how far the world has gone away from a belief in God, from a belief in a higher morality, from a belief in the responsibility of an individual, of an individual to live up to a certain moral code. Um, and it's really, you know, the wheels have come off and there's very little left in terms of the moral framework of society. And in order for us to instill within our children a sense of appreciation for what it means to be a Jew, a sense of understanding what the responsibilities are of a Jew in the world. So we need to give them a broader perspective. And that's what Rav Hirsch is teaching us over here, is the Kohanim we need to teach you B'nai Aaron. Our children we need to teach that we have a magnificent, holy, beautiful heritage, a tradition that is so rich and so deep and so powerful. And we really have all the answers we need in the Torah, in our holy tradition. It's very hard to live in the world today 
without a basic understanding and framework of the meaning of life. And that's why we see so much unhappiness and so much darkness in the world and so many people that are lost and that are broken and that are unhappy and that are depressed and that are uh, abused to different substances or different other types of addictions. So that is because the world is a place that doesn't provide the answers and that is a very frightening, sad place. But when we open our eyes to the light of Torah and we look at this magnificent tradition that is a part of who we are, this treasure that is in our own backyard, so we see a world of meaning that explains the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the value of life, the value of every individual, the mission of each individual in the world, the job that we're all supposed to do, the work we're supposed to do on ourselves. So it's not that, you know, if, if we communicate Judaism in a negative way and in a way that we emphasize the restrictions and the limitations and the no, no, no's, so there's very little chance that our children and ourselves will, will carry on in, a, in the right way in an inspired way. But if we communicate a picture, which is the accurate picture, which is actually the truth, that um, the the privilege and the opportunity, tell Moshe says to Hashem says to Moshe, tell the Kohanim, they B'nai Aaron, they descendants of this incredible human being who brought such life, light and peace and harmony and balance to the world. And when we communicate to our children that our heritage is one of such beauty and with such meaning and elevates each and every one of us and gives us the tools to do the work that we're supposed to in this world, tells us what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it, which is the greatest gift of all. Without that, one is very lost and very uncertain. And the turbulent storms that blow in society will do us a lot of damage. But if we have deep roots that are firm and that draw from the nutrients of holiness, of spirituality, of God, so then we, we are able to stand up to those storms and we are able to live a life of meaning and of light and of joy and of purpose. So that is a, a, a difficult task for every single Jew, but it's something that we should think about and something that we should understand. And we need to provide a perspective. Actually, the Midrash says that Moshe Aaron was so so reluctant to be the Kohen Gadol. The Bible says, Kach is Aaron, take Aaron. Kach is like a lashon of, of force, you know, like ensure that, you know, you need to enforce this upon him. Um, and how, how does Moshe do that? The Midrash says is by giving him a perspective, by understanding the privilege and the opportunity and the joy of taking on this position. And that's what every Jew is. We have a wonderful opportunity and a privilege to be um, the ambassadors of God in the world, to see Hashem's light in the world, to spread that light of Hashem, firstly f within ourselves, when we connect to something beyond ourselves, something eternal, when we see God's fingerprints in the universe, which are everywhere, by the way, it's like you really got to close your eyes tight to miss them because everything we look at, it uh, cries out to us that there's a wise designer of the world and it's intricate and it's complicated and it is vast and it is perfect. So that's screaming to us that there's a creator and there's a, there's, this world is not an accident, this world is not a coincidence, it's based on 
the design of a creator and we all have a purpose and a function within that world within that magnificent design and so and when we see how beautiful that is and how how uplifting it is and how empowering it is that we can can play our part in God's world in God's creation and we can all fulfill our purpose and when we develop ourselves spiritually and when we learn to say no to the eight sorrow to allow ourselves and yes to our neshama, and we control the animalistic part of our personality, that's the greatest sense of accomplishment and achievement. Then we feel like we're doing something. We feel like we have meaning. We feel like we've accomplished something in our life. And then we can go on to, to develop to greater and bigger heights. So it's important that firstly we appreciate ourselves, the privilege of what it means to be a Jew, and the, and the great schus, the great merit it is to be um, Hashem's children and to be part of Hashem Bachabani, because I'm part of the, the nation of Klai Israel with the, the elevated task of bringing the lessons of monotheism to the, monotheism to the world, the lessons that Abraham Avinu and Sarah Emanuel taught to the world, and that is our role too. And by living according to the Torah and mitzvahs and rising above our lower self and connecting with Hashem in our lives, we bring a great joy and light to ourselves, to our families, and to the world. So that's the message that we need to communicate to our children, which is the message that Hashem told Moshe to communicate to the Bnei Aaron, to, to the descendants of Aaron, that it's a privilege to be a Kohen, privilege to follow in the footsteps of Aaron HaKohen, and uh, something that we should all rise to and, uh, and ensure that we... Um, do so with success and with pride and with joy. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.